You're listening to theoutdoorstation.co.uk. Hello and welcome to another podcast from The Outdoor Station. And first of all, let me start by apologising by the infrequent releases that we've been doing. We've been, uh, like most people, we've had a very, very busy year uh, and certainly uh, things seem to be getting busier and busier all the time and uh, time has been sacrificed from somewhere. And uh, sadly, we've had to um, take time from producing the, the podcasts, which do take a fair amount of time, and put it into other activities. Anyway, that said, um, we have uh, looked back over the year and I've been rooting around for various interviews that I've done uh, and not released. And I must admit, I do apologise and it's very remiss of me uh, not to uh, bring this one forward sooner uh, as uh, these are a series of uh, interviews that we recorded at the Wilderness Gathering this year. Now, the Wilderness Gathering, uh, as you probably remember, is, is really basically where all the bushcraft community get together and have their sort of outdoor show. Um, and it's a great event. It's a real hands-on, um, back-to-nature event, which is um, unusual uh, in this day and age where you have the, the NEC type events, which have got... Um obviously all the facilities uh, and the costs to go with it whereas this one is much more uh, hands-on it's on a, a farm um, there's uh, the ability to actually camp amongst the the bushcraft community as well next to the main arena um, and uh, for some people visiting uh, visiting the show it's actually probably uh, the first time they they really do wild or rough camping as it were uh, and they learn a lot by seeing what other people are, are carrying with them and and so on so, um, when the bushcraft event uh, comes round uh, in 2009, the Wilderness Gathering, do keep your eyes open for it, because uh, although it's not cheap to get in, it, it's well worth going, and certainly if you like uh, sharing knowledge and information and, and picking other people's brains, it's definitely the place to go. It's certainly a much uh, more intimate and, and friendly event, and considerably smaller than um, any of the, the bigger, more commercial ones, uh, but still um, very popular nonetheless. So uh, what do we do at the Wilderness Gathering? Well, we had a stand down there doing uh, various commercial activities. But we also broke away from time to time to to speak to various people. Now, the the event itself was broken up into sort of various sections. You had a sort of the main arena uh, around which there were the uh, various stands selling courses, uh, promoting courses and activities they do, such as tracking and, and sort of basic bushcraft and advanced bushcraft and bushcraft uh, overseas, as it were, in more remote places, which was uh, interesting in itself. But um, off to one side, there was a, another area which was much more in the demonstration traditional crafts, uh, which I found to be fascinating. Um, now, the, the stands and, and displays that were there, there's only a handful, um, but uh, they were using sort of traditional techniques and tools which would have been used hundreds of years ago to make items, uh, and the quality of the items uh, wouldn't actually be out of place in today's modern designer boutiques. So I had a wander into the area to speak to them and see if I could find out more about the techniques that they were using. I'm Peter Butler of Saxon Village Crafts. My wife and I have specialised in demonstrating early crafts for the last 22 years. I was um, a civil engineer. I used to work for the GLC in London. Um, we decided one day that uh, we didn't want to live in London anymore. We wanted to bring our kids up in the country, so we moved outside, learned to be poor. <laughs> then for a period I went abroad collecting reptiles for... Uh, 
BBC Natural History Unit and other things. But we also started getting interested in reenactments, running around bashing each other with swords. But very quickly I found that it was actually much nicer to make swords for other people to run around and bash each other with it, hurt far less. You were saying that the, the reenactment um, interest uh, when you first started it sort of 20 years ago uh, was purely the, uh, the rushing around and bashing, but actually it's developed into much more of an educational industry now. Oh yes, nowadays, when we first started doing craft demonstrations there were very few people doing reenactment demonstrations, early period crafts. But now it's grown, as you say, into nearly every major reenactment society has their own kind of living history branch, which is good. Out of curiosity, what sort of... I mean, I've sort of dipped my toes into different sort of communities and we're here, with, uh, obviously, today with the bushcraft community and yeah. I do a lot with the sort of the backpacking and outdoors people and a bit with the equestrian. Mm. But I've not really touched on the, um, the reenactment uh, enthusiasts. Are they... You know, do, do all the interests overlap, do you think, or do, are they sort of specifically one type of person? Uh, oh, no, they're certainly not one type of person. Um, for a start, the... Different reenactment societies range from everything from, you know, Stone Age reenactment to Second World War. Okay. Um, and in fact, there are actually some that do the Vietnam War now. Um, my, my own interest has always been the early period stuff. And truthfully, now the fighting side of it doesn't interest me much at all. It's actually the craft, the technologies that are really of interest to me. Well, certainly uh, the, the few minutes you were just chatting about the, the craft and technologies of those different periods that you're, you're, uh, you specialise in, and then certainly the jewellery and, and uh, items we've got here, again, it makes me feel that you must be in touch with, with people of that era and how they perhaps worked or, or felt with, uh, in communicating with nature as part of, the, part of the earth, as it were. Well, one thing you have to do is, whichever period you're working in, and whichever artifact, because I do a lot of artifact reproduction for museums, you have to put yourself into the mindset of the person that was originally um, making that object. For instance, I mean, the classic example is when I make reproductions of early um, iron helmets. Um, I never drill holes in the metal, I punch it because it's actually much quicker and truthfully when you rivet through a punched hole it actually holds better than a drilled hole so and so all the time you have to put yourself into the mindset of the person of that period in history and and what do you feel you've you've learned in the process of doing this over the last 20 or so years mm. what has surprised you about uh, your learning in the way they must have been thinking as opposed to the way you assumed they were thinking yeah. well it, Everyone today thinks that we must be much cleverer than people in the past. In fact, it's totally untrue. If you look at some of the Stone Age artefacts that have been found, they were masters of their own technologies, the same with the Bronze Age, Iron Age and later periods. Whichever period you live in, people control their own environment. So understand the things that are around them, the nature. I mean, you walk in the woods here, there's a whole toolkit there, there's a whole larder there. You know, all of these things our early ancestors would have known about. We don't. Mm. And do you think it's a shame that we're losing that? Um, well, that's, in a sense, I do, yes. Because it's one of the good things about the wilderness gathering and other similar events. It's putting people back to thinking about what's around them mm. and appreciating what's around them.
Mm, definitely. The um, I know you do 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 a range of courses, and you're doing courses here for demonstrations for children mm. and, and so on. Um, how do you find the the modern person's attention span? Well, it's quite interesting. We do a lot in schools. We we find, funnily enough, that children's hand skills aren't as good, um, simply because when I spent my childhood, I spent most of my time usually cutting little bits out of my fingers when I was making model aeroplanes and the like. Whereas nowadays, uh, most kids spend most of their time banging away on a computer keyboard. Um, so I think that hand skills should be taught in schools because people don't realise that learning hand skills doesn't just train your hand, it trains your mind as well. Um, we, we enjoy going into schools. The children enjoy working in the hand skills, um, like weaving on a walk-weighted loom or drop-spinning sewing, calligraphy, writing with a quill pen, lots of different things. They do enjoy it, and they would enjoy it if they had more time to do it in school. Yeah, well, that's, we're back to the same old nutshell, aren't we? Oh, yeah. It's just because there isn't enough time to do everything, and some of the important skills are being sacrificed for yeah. computer skills. Mm. Tell me about so. some of the um, the items you've got here and, and the sort of the, the costs or the time involved in, in making a few, if you just a handful of, if you will. Well, I, I mean, we, we've got combs ranging from, well, on the table at the moment, they're antler combs from the Celtic Iron Age, which... Uh, we're not sure. They were either used as hair combs or they were used for carding wool for spinning into thread. Uh, or probably for both, truthfully. And then so, so they're actual copies of... Uh, oh, they're very accurate the th copies of the original. But all obviously not, the not bone. No, they are. Yes, oh, they're, they they're all even made in the correct antler. The early uh, Celtic combs are made of red deer antler. If you look at the later period combs I've got here, I've got... Um, for instance, Anglo-Saxon combs of the late 10th century. They're made of red deer antler as well. That's the, the antler that was used in this country. Uh, I've got a Viking comb here, copy of a Scandinavian design. That's made of elk antler because a lot of the Viking combs were made of elk. You simply use the material that's suited what you're doing. And although it looks, as you say, it's a, it's a perfect replica of, of uh, a design I may have seen in a book somewhere, yeah. in actual practical terms, are they strong, effective combs? Oh, yes. The, the reason they're made of antler is, antler is a kind of bone, but it's about 30% tougher than ordinary bone. So when you look at items made of bone and antler, you'll see a difference. You'll see things like bone cloak pins around, you will find bone spindle wheels doing drop spinning you'll find medieval bone spoons bone is brittle it's all right for those objects you very seldom find bone combs because the teeth would be very weak that's why nearly all early combs are made of antler okay. and moving along there to the sort of wooden items you've got some wooden combs there as well mm. yes they're they're quite interesting they're copies of boxwood combs truthfully when a an individual cone is found, say, in the, in the mud in the River Thames. You're never quite sure whether the boxwood comb is Roman or medieval because the designs are virtually identical. It's often usually the context where they're found that gives you the clue as to which period of history they come from. OK. Uh, and and you do do metalwork as well, I say? Oh, yes. I, I used to do a lot of ironwork um, making swords and well for instance i've just finished a, a set of 
uh, brass and horn lanterns for Birmingham Museum. They're, they're reopening one of their 17th century houses and I made the lanterns for them. It must be um, very rewarding to, to and satisfying to, to, to make these sort of items. Are there, when you go to these shows and so on, are there many people that you're meeting that would actually like to be an apprentice with you and actually learn the skills with you? Oh, yes. I, I mean, in fact, our business isn't just my wife and I. We have a group of people that work with us on a regular basis, two or three of which have actually been helped to start in their various activities by us. And it's very gratifying to see people after 10 or 15 years have been able to build up a really good set of skills for doing all sorts of things like well, calligraphy I mentioned, um, riveted mail making. We've got lots of people who do lots of different things that work well, with that's us. Well, congratulations for that. It must be really satisfying to, to see oh, that continue. Yeah, it is. It's great, great fun. I've I got a lot of pleasure about seeing the encouragement you can give people. And uh, just finally then, the sort of uh, bushcraft community that we're in at the moment, uh, how has that changed over the last few years and, and where do you think it's sort of going? Well, it's certainly got bigger. I mean, we're all really on the periphery of bushcraft. I mean, funny enough, we've used a lot of the bushcraft skills because we've spent a lot of the last 20 years, you know, camping in fields. <laughs> but um, since we've been working at this event with Roger, um, it's grown massively so. I mean, partly true because of the television programmes that have involved talking of bushcraft. Um, but I think people are beginning to see the natural world around them as, as important and also as a classroom, a place you can learn many things and find things of great use to you as well. And if you want to contact Peter Butler, details can be found in the show notes next to this podcast on theoutdoorstation.co.uk. Now, many whisky connoisseurs will be aware of the island of Islay, off the northwest coast of the UK, renowned for producing the most strongly flavoured phenolic whiskies in Scotland. Well worth a trip in my book. However, it's also the home of one of the most remote bushcraft schools, Islay Birding and Bushcraft, run by the well-known and much-respected Jeremy Hastings. Jeremy not only runs the school, but is also a professional storyteller, trying to keep the art of listening and vivid imagination alive in all of us. Highly privileged, um, fantastic scenery, great place. I mean, we live it. You know, that's, that's the thing, and we deliberately chose to do that um <clears throat> the the interesting thing for some people it's not it's not going to work for people you know if you're living on an island you you have lots of difficulties first of all you know you can have things like food not turning up and uh, fuel not turning up and you know uh, one shop and a post office and things like that however on the other side if you like the wilderness if you like just being out there and just being your own comfortableness within that wild place, then it's it's just the best place ever. So, so tell us in, in detail where where actually is it that you're based? Well, if you go get if you get to Glasgow, which is uh, Scotland's <laughs> yeah, second that's the other city, side of the border. <laughs> Aye, that's right. And then you turn left there, so you start going out towards America, and you drive for three hours, and then you get to a ferry. And then you sit in the ferry for two and a half hours, and then you get to Isla. And it's just sort of one of the most westerly islands. Well, it's quite south, 
it's one of the most westly islands in, in Britain. And the, well, ne the next stop is uh, Nova Scotia, Labrador. Okay, so make sure the ferry doesn't miss. <laughs> <laughs> I've uh, recently been up to, to Cape Wrath. Right. And uh, uh -huh. did a nice walk up there from from Ullapool up to uh -huh. Cape Breath, mm -hmm. and uh, in the process of doing it, I was with a, a friend of mine, and uh, we were talking on many occasions about how um, hard we thought it would be to mm -hmm. to live a sort of a bushcraft mm -hmm. lifestyle, uh -huh. living off the land mm -hmm. and so on, mm -hmm. uh, because I couldn't really see much that I recognise mm -hmm. from the, my, mm -hmm. my knowledge mm -hmm. uh, to, to live on and, mm -hmm. and so on, although sort of the basic building blocks were mm -hmm. there, mm -hmm. but actually food and sustenance mm -hmm. and that sort of thing mm -hmm. uh, looked like it would be pretty hard to mm -hmm. come by. What's it like out on the island? It's, uh, perception is everything. Um, and what one has to be very aware of and what I, I teach a lot of people is, is this whole thing of we're, we're taking footsteps of other people and on Isla we know that there have been people before... The Mesolithic. So people have been living quite comfortably on Isla for over 10,000 years. And then one has to start thinking, okay, so what do they live on? And how do they live it? And there is plenty to look for, but you have to, first of all, think in seasons. And the second thing is, it's very limited. You know, we, we now have, you know, in our daily lives in Britain and in sort of mainland Europe, we have supermarkets, you know, and you can go into the supermarket and, you know, you're, you're, that, that's really the wilderness for me personally because, you know, you, you don't have a choice between plain yoghurt and fruit yoghurt. You have, you know, eight or nine different fruit yoghurts, you know. Well, those sort of tastes are very limiting in the landscape. We've lost the subtlety. So, you know, you can find silverweed, which will give you quite a lot of carbohydrate. You can find pig nut at different times a year you know you've got massive we've still got in the old caves massive midden piles of limpets the diet it works in relation to to the seasons mm -hmm. do you find that the people that come and do your courses um take a while to slow down and, and get yeah. rid of that immediate expectation and build up some patience it's it's that's the biggest challenge that everybody has um and it takes basically three days to become you know what we say three days to become a caveman you know, because your life, you know, as we find it when we come back here to the mainland and, and meet people, it's so hectic and it's exhausting just being with people because they're just full on all the mm. time. And actually, where we are, if you're full on all the time, you miss things. Yeah. Um, so th there's a lot of unlearning, de-schooling, de-stressing de before you start tuning in again. And there's the, uh, the way I teach is a very different way to, to a lot of people where it's, it's, very, it's very specific, but it's incredibly unplanned. Um, I know within a week or the four days or whatever the length of course is, people will achieve X, Y, and Z, but they don't have a timetable to go, right, we're going to do this today and we're going to do that tomorrow. And we're going to, because the, the situation can't possibly be like that because the weather changes, the plants change, the climate changes, the person changes. You know, you can, you can actually, you know, there are some parts on Isla where the nearest person to you is another island, is on another island nine nautical miles away. And, you know, for me, that's, that's great. But for some people, it's like, whoa, hang on a minute. Yes. <laughs> you know, just like, how can I cope with that? Yeah. So you have to try and ease back on that, first mm. of all. I get a lot of people coming on who are, you know, involved very clever people in business and, uh, you know, highfalutin, you know, sort of... Um, uh, banks and things like that and you know everything is planned to the nth degree and then you know then they're living their bushcraft life and they're obviously hankering after that and desperate for it mm. 
but uh, they'll say, oh, so, so what are we doing in the next hour? I said, well, who knows? We'll have to wait and see. Mm. Mm. Do you find um, the people that, that join you for these, these courses, uh, are, they, uh, are your majority of customers from Scotland or are they actually travelling from, from England to experience the, the, the island culture as well? Uh, the majority of people come from all over the world. Really? Uh, I've had Japanese people, I've had Americans, I've had Latin Americans, French, Spanish, all sorts of people. Um, and there's a good trickle of you know my own fellow country people and uh, also from england and wales as well so god bless exactly. the internet uh, exactly <laughs> absolutely um, well you're, you're certainly becoming known jeremy and, and certainly in, in magazines as being a storyteller uh, and uh, there's lovely articles each each month uh, or each issue in the magazines uh, where you're you're telling stories and mm. explaining just how important it is the art of telling stories mm. and the art of listening to stories mm. of course mm. uh, tell me a bit about that well, that's interesting. I mean, I've been involved in the um, outdoor education world for uh, teaching for 30 years now. And uh, it's uh, and before that, I was involved in um, sort of having to listen and learn. Um, and I, w I was brought up in a, um, a Benedictine monastery. So we had to we had to learn. We had to spend a lot of time thinking. And. Uh, of course, with the thinking comes story, because you actually are having to listen to other people. You have to listen to other people, and you have to listen to their wisdom. And uh, so I became more and more interested in story. And now that I'm sort of, uh, you know, halfway to 100, that, you know, you realize that story is so important. And we see story in everything, and we've lost the culture of the story that is is oral. We've lost the oral, oral tradition tradition and in Scotland of course that was hugely important you know um, people would travel a long way to hear stories and people would travel a long way to tell stories and I I follow the the, the story storyteller tradition of having very little it's just just the story within you and you have to let the story come out and the story will come out appropriately to that group of people that you're going to tell it to which is, sounds a bit bizarre to a lot of people because normally most people's stories are prepared mm. there and then. But I have a sort of um, a bibliotheque of stories that I can just pull into and just add and, you know, just, that's how it works. Well, I saw you in fine form last night, completely <laughs> surrounded by children around, the, around a lovely fire there, uh, and you had them completely uh, enraptured. Well, that's very nice of you to say. They, they were there, and, it was, and, and the great thing was you, you using the balance and the timbre of your voice and the raising mm -hmm. and the dropping of the mm -hmm. voice and keeping mm -hmm. it quiet, mm -hmm. from, and they had to listen harder. Mm -hmm. uh, do you find that they demonstrate afterwards a sort of uh, surprise that something so simple as telling a story as opposed to it being internet or, or uh, coming off the computer or coming off a PlayStation. Um, they're surprised actually how enjoyable something as simple as that can be. I think, I don't know if they're, they're I think the pa parents are surprised. Really? No, I think that's the thing. I, I think they're shocked at their children being able to listen to that. I think story in every, is, is innate in everybody. Um, and I've worked all over, literally, sounds very arrogant, but I've worked all over the world from North Arctic, um, Finland, to, to Southern Africa and out to the uh, East, East Indies, as it were, and have listened to people telling stories and, and watched people and learned from people and picked up different ideas and stories. And the ones which uh, always work, without a doubt, are the simplest and 
the storyteller is the lightest, mm. you know. Mm. Um, and we surround ourselves with all this kit. And I think parents, being a parent, you're a parent, Bob, you know, yeah. um, you know, we feel that we need to, to give our children something more than we had. Um, and that could be kit. And, you know, we're both reliant on selling kit as well. Mm. <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, we, we all like kit, you know, it's an, ooh, it's a piece of kit. <laughs> you know, but actually, when you start paring it down, what do you actually need? Mm. You know, and with story, all you need is somebody who can see the imagination and allow you to see your imagination. Because when you say something in a story like that, especially with people, every single person in that audience, and that's the interesting, the audience is audio they're the ones who are listening every single person has their own story and that own picture mm -hmm. in their own head and you as the storyteller have to be the conduit for that to allow that to happen mm. and that's um, why I, sorry yeah on. i was just say that the last time i i saw somebody delivering a story like mm. you, you were doing last mm. night was uh, uh, was in del jama square in marrakesh right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in the evenings when mm -hmm. the square gets reverted back to the to the locals and the, yeah. lo and the local uh -huh. storytellers Aye. come yeah. and you can see the kids completely Aye. enraptured yeah. and there's a Aye. little flame going Aye. there yeah. and there's a yeah. there's a chap there who's who's doing delivering it exactly the Aye. same way Aye. and they're that's their entertainment Aye. the traditional yeah. stories Aye. being kept yeah. alive uh, and the spirit of, of, of whatever it was they were saying I had no uh -huh. idea but just yeah. watching the delivery yeah. was fantastic Aye. that's right no absolutely right and it's a it's a uh, you know, when you start looking at the history of storytellers, people who become storytellers have an innate thing to do that. And it's a sort of a, a, a driven thing that you need to tell stories. And that, that sounds terribly arrogant. It's not supposed to be. But, you know, when people find out that you're a storyteller, you know, they say, well, can you tell us a story? And, you know. And so you begin. Mm. And so you begin. <laughs> that sounds like Maybe the beginning of a book. <laughs> yeah. Now moving on yeah. to uh, moving on to the, the wilderness gathering where we're yeah. now. So we're now down in uh, what in Wiltshire here, and um, uh, there's been a fair few people come through. We've been very lucky mm. with the weather. It's been uh, very glorious uh, mm -hmm. today, a proper summer's day, nice. which is a rare Fantastic. thing in itself. Right. Um, certainly, a different, uh, diverse range of people that come through, and and, and also. Um, there's a lot of surprise mentioned uh, by by those camping in the woods that they're actually allowed mm. to, to to camp in the woods and, and experience the bushcraft mm. um, the whole ethos mm. in, in in real life, as mm. it were. Mm. No, absolutely right. And I think people have been removed from it for lots of different reasons, uh, and maybe you know that they themselves are at fault because they have removed themselves. Um, and then you know you get people who wanted want to teach it and show people that you know there are uh, it amazes me that there are so many organizations here who can make a living out of teaching people doing something that you know we all did as children mm. and we've lost that connectivity and that you know also comes back to the story you know that we don't we don't we don't find the connectivity anymore we don't find the connectivity with the landscape we don't find the connectivity with the people and we don't find the both Inter, interrelate and, and, and interact, and so we've got we've got a society now that has no connection with where the food comes from, no connection with the nature that they're part of. There's no connection with who they are, and they just exist. And when you start peeling that back like an onion, it, it's it's quite um, quite serious. I think. I mean, I had two people come up today who'd been on courses, and they said that you know because they'd been on a course with me, it set them up on other things, and one has now become an instructor. I mean, that's fantastic. You know, what an honor is, is that, you know? But he, he, was, he was saying that this, this thing, he 
realised that he had lost so much in such a short time, mm. and now you know it, it had all opened up to him. You know, so that that's that's really fascinating. Um, when I was thinking about this the other day, and it may sound sort of a bit trite, but you know nowadays I think what happens is that people you know they live in a house or a flat, and it's in a, a, a city or a town, and they you know they have to go and get their food, so they drive to the supermarket, and then they drive back, and they've done their hunter gathering in the supermarket, and it's all a bit fay because you have you know the bakers in the supermarket and the butchers in the supermarket and the dairy bit in the supermarket and then they come back and then they have to go off and they have to go and do some sports so they drive to the gym and they run up and down on the gym and then they come back and the kids need entertainment so they drive to the um uh you know cinema whatever so they get their entertainment and they come back and oh they want to go and see some nature so they drive to the wildlife reserve so everything is 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 not connected anymore. So mm. when you have an opportunity like this, the wilderness gathering, where the, it's full on connectivity, and there are people here from all sorts of backgrounds, you know, uh, and it's a very sort of laissez-faire attitude. You know, it's great. You know, and you, you know, everything from barefooted children to you know, sort of um, very uh, um, over over richly. Um, weaponed adults <laughs> it's it's quite a mix and you know fantastic each to his own more information on jeremy and his activities can be found at islay bushcraft or islaybirding.co.uk and of course there's links in the show notes now it was good to see at the wilderness gathering uh, many uh, people uh, following their pastime, and it was encouraging to see the number of children that were there. But dragging kids away from PlayStations is becoming a regular complaint, often overheard amongst uh, mature outdoor fans who can't understand why the younger generation are not getting the same thrills from their outdoor lifestyle as they are. Perhaps the adults themselves struggle with uh, a bit with the outdoor lifestyle, and their concerns and apprehensions are passed on unwittingly to their offspring, and thus fear creeps in, and once again, the PlayStation takes over. However, there are some new books which have been released by Going Wild, and their ethos is simple, aimed directly at the younger person. They are all about encouraging youngsters, and the not-so-young, to escape into the great outdoors to discover the wonders and excitement of the natural world. Their aim is to inspire children and young people to switch off that TV and rush outside. Here their imaginations can run riot. They can learn new skills and face new challenges. Going Wild aims to help you and your children take advantage of whatever nature offers throughout the year. Don't stay cooped up indoors. Get outside for some real-world adventure. At the Wilderness Gathering, Rose spoke to the authors, Fiona Danks and Joe Schofield, to find out how and why the books came about. Well, Joe and I met when our children were young and we both enjoyed taking our children outdoors with our, with, with our husbands, obviously, and playing with them in the woods, doing all sorts of activities. And lots of our friends would say, oh, we can't walk with us anymore because the children don't want to walk. They don't want to go outside. And we decided there's something wrong here. We need to be encouraging more people to take their children outside to enjoy the natural world. And I'd been thinking about writing something and Joe. Um, had been taking pictures and so we decided that we would work together and collaborate on a book. So if, if that was the beginning how then did you actually put that into practice because I know often having good ideas is great but actually 
put actioning them is, is a different thing. I think um, I'd done quite a lot in the commercial world with the photography, so we actually started off by writing articles, and um, we'd write articles and illustrate them to try and inspire you know, people so it looked good and it looked fun. Um, and we got a series of articles in Country Living magazine over a year, really, didn't we? Mm. Seasonal activities yeah. so that we were sort of showing that you could go out in the winter, you could go out after dark, you know, even after school in, um, and have tea outside, you know, even not in the summer. Um, and so we did that for Country Living, really, and from that the book came. We then approached a publishers, and one publisher we went to, um, the person we, we sent the proposal to had just moved to the country. She had children, and she'd just seen the articles in Country Living. So we were very fortunate, and then that publisher took us on, and um, we published our first book, Nature's Playground, in 2006, and our next book, Go Wild, which is bushcraft um, adventures for 11- to 16-year-olds primarily. Uh, that comes out next year. And then we have another book, Run Wild, which will be coming out in 2010, which is um, activities, again, for the slightly older children. That's creative activities from basket making to digging up clay and making pots in your own kiln to practical conservation activities, games, making uh, go-karts, go cricket bats, children's parties outdoors, all sorts of things. All our things, I think, involve... Not you don't have to buy very much. It's all sort of things that you can sort of scavenge and uh, try to make it accessible to all. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think what's quite interesting, looking through the books, it, it's it's stuff probably we did naturally, and and yet we seem to have to be educating people on how to do these uh, activities again themselves. I mean, I was um, struck here today just watching uh, your daughter Connie um, whittling away with a very sharp knife, um, making something. Connie, what, what were you up to? I was making a spoon. Um, basically, I had just had um, a lesson on knife safety, and um, my mum always and warns things about knives just in case and it is a sharp knife so I can get through the wood easily and it's better to have a sharp knife than a blunt one because otherwise you have to put more pressure on the blunt one and it's more easily to hurt yourself. Well done, that was uh, quite a lesson in itself. <laughs> um, now tell me, Connie, can you tell me what sort of wood you were using? I was using hazel um, wood, hazel wood because it's um, softer and it's easier to make things out of when it hardens afterwards. Now I can already see a, a beautiful spoon shape there but but you've left the end. Why have you left the end the opposite end to the spoon, the handle part much wider? Um, it's so I can make an animal head at the end of the spoon. I've left enough space so I can make whatever animal I want. Her brother is here and uh, yes he's been making all sorts of things. He's had a go at making atlatls which are sort of throwing Primitive natural missile launchers, they call them. It's um, easier to make than a bow and arrow and is a way of making a dart or a spear go much further than if you were just throwing the dart or spear straight from your hand. That sounds great. So um, where, where uh, the book's obviously available here, but where can people get hold of, of the book that's published? It's available in most good bookshops, as they say, but it's also available on Amazon and um, quite a lot of um, uh, websites it's, it's available from, and also from our publisher's website, which is Francis Lincoln. It's also, we have a website as well called... Goingwild.net. 
Yes, www.goingwild.net and all the information about our books. And we're try trying to actually get sort of information on where you can go and do these activities in your area, trying to encourage people to actually add to it. And we're hoping to have a sort of forum and a discussion going uh, and try and encourage more people to get out and say it's okay to let your kids out, it's okay to let them get dirty, it's better that they learn to judge risk for themselves and um, do things that initially you might think are a bit dangerous but actually if they're taught properly they get a huge sense of achievement out of it and learn new life skills really and there's also huge social skills as well i think that they learn i mean in the making of our books we've had some wonderful times just sitting around fires with children and you know they can entertain themselves perfectly well without the tv and the computer and the mobile phone but sometimes it's quite a struggle to get them out there but once you're out there it's well worthwhile And more information and copies of the books can be found at goingwild.net. Well, that uh, brings the uh, Wilderness Gathering collection of interviews uh, to a close. I do apologise once again for the delay. However, having said that, perhaps it's given you some inspiration about what to do over the winter period or uh, what to do in 2009. Now, if you want to come to the Wilderness Gathering or find out more about it, it's well worth doing. Uh, visit their website, which is wildernessgathering.co.uk and I see the date's now been set for the 20th to the 23rd of August 2009. And there's details there of the tickets and, and some of the things that will be going on. We will certainly be there once again. Um, it is a great family event and certainly if you're tempted to find out more about uh, the bushcraft activity or even enhance your knowledge for um, your outdoor activities by taking on some bushcraft skills, it's certainly the place to go and uh, you can find out more about the uh, the equipment, the courses uh, and the people once you're there. So it's, uh, it's well worth doing and also if nothing else, um, as we've already stated, it's great fun to be able to uh, be at an event like that and camp with uh, hundreds of other like-minded people. Uh, it's uh, a fairly unique event, certainly from that point of view. Anyway, so that about uh, wraps this one up from us. Uh, there are some more coming before Christmas. We're also trying to concentrate and do a few more video uh, podcasts as well, which take sadly take a lot longer, but um, they're well worth it uh, to, to pass on the love and the knowledge and information of all the exciting new gear and things that are floating around. Anyway, until next time, um, have a good winter break, and uh, we'll catch up with you very soon. Bye for now. This independent programme is produced and hosted by theoutdoorsstation.co.uk.